we had about 300 rounds shot at us from the shore, and one of them came in and came through the rear turret. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them, and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd, and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. There were a couple of public beheadings. In order to kill them, you've got to be a little bit angry. Not psychotic, but just angry. We could look down Frankfurt and see it on fire. Stuff blowing up everywhere. There will be no surrender. And then they had to fight an enemy in amongst we got children. Point, you're you're going to I could never often. not go back. They were my friends and they felt the top of us. She did say, you've changed. A soldier put everything on the line to help one of our blokes. Angus Horden spoke with Royal Australian Navy veteran and former Vice Chief of Defence Force, Ian Knox. Ian served in the Navy for 42 years, including during the Vietnam War. Angus and Ian spoke about a few highlights from the Vice Admiral's career. I'm Angus Horden, and today we're joined by Ian Knox. Ian, thank you for speaking with us today. You're welcome. Ian, you were born in the country in 1933. What was it like growing up just before the Second World War? Well, I was in Wilcannia, which is on the Darling River. I had a good time up there. I went down to school in Adelaide, where my father had been there before me. And uh, I had three years there. And then I went down to the Navy. Did any of your family then go into the war? No, my father wanted to go in, but he he was just outside the the limit. And were there any other extended family associated with the war? Well, my grandfather, my mother's father, he was in the First World War and he was a, a colonel and he lasted for not very long and he got a bullet through the head. He died pretty quickly. So knowing that heritage that had happened and that great sadness you then decide to join the forces yourself. Tell us about that. I wanted to do that because I had a a good line with uh, the Navy and I had a few people in Wilcannia were in the Navy, had been in the Navy. So I I got a long time in, in that lot and I got in the Navy and I had a great time in the Navy. Ian, it's interesting. You're another one of these great Navy career guys that comes from the country. Yeah. You know, I'm talking about guys like Guy Griffiths, yeah, etc. Yes, yeah. And there's a bit of commonality with you guys. Yes, there is. That you're land-based, but you serve the sea. Yes, yeah. So where do you go for your training? I went down to Cerberus, and we went there as junior officers, and we were there for four years, and uh, it was not a very nice place to be. <laughs> You've been to Cerberus? My posting was Creswell. So Ian, when do you join the Navy and how old are you? I was 13 when I joined the Navy. We were all 13. There were 24 of us. So at 13, you're joining the Navy to start the Navy system, but you're also doing your education. Yes, that's right. Yep. So a lot of people wouldn't be aware that young boys were doing their HSC, for example, like we do here in Sydney, but you're doing it with a Navy tilt. And how did you find life at the college? It was a bit rough, very rough. A bit old school, huh? bit old school, bit old school, yeah. Well, we had four years down at the Naval College 
and that was pretty rough. And it was not very good down there, and we got a lot of belting around. So pretty Spartan, pretty cold and pretty tough? Yep. All of that. And having come off the land and had that experience, did you find that helped you? Yes, I did, yep. So a lot of the city boys perhaps could have struggled a bit more than you. Probably, yes, yes. There were a few others there as well. What sort of subjects were they teaching you there? There are a few naval subjects, but not many. We had some very useless professors there that were teaching us. So let's run through a typical morning. What, what time's Reveille for you? Uh, we used to get up at 6.30. And it would be dark and cold down dark there? Dark and cold down. And you, what, running straight away, going for a run with the boys? or We'd usually go for a run, yes. So you do your run, you have your breakfast, mm. and then into school? Into school. And what time school finish? About four o'clock. You're then doing sport and stuff? Yes. It's a very masculine, it's a very active lifestyle for you yes, guys. Yes, it is. Very active. And how was the discipline from the instructors to you? Pretty hard. <laughs> how do you reflect upon how they treated you then compared to how they may treat you know, today's generation? I think they treated us a lot worse than they treat the fellas now. So in 1950, you're commissioned and you're posted over to the UK. Now, at that time, the Korean War's on. Yes. I didn't go out there, but half of our group went out there later. And their role was just part of the Allied naval effort in keeping support for the land push that was happening in Korea. Yes, although they were in the one of the cruisers. With your deployment to the UK, where does that lead you? We had about... 10 months there, and then we came back to Australia, and then we had things in Australia that we were doing, and that was about another 14 months. And then I went back to UK to do a, a course, and a few other people went back to UK to do a course too. Were your courses at Greenwich? Or Greenwich. It must have been such a lovely reward for you. Yeah. To leave your training here and go to Greenwich. Yeah. I mean, you, you really must have thought, gee, yeah. I made the right call here. <laughs> you do a range of courses in the UK and Australia, and then 1966, you're posted as the XO on the destroyer Perth. Can you tell us about that? Uh, yes, well, I had a, about a year there with Perth alongside because she was being given a very good rundown and getting ICARA fitted. And can you explain what ICARA is, please? Well, it was a, a long-range weapon, ship to ship. Before that, I'd done three years at the Weapons Research Establishment in Melbourne, and I had three years there and doing work on ICARA. So it then made sense to post you to our ICARA destroyer, yep. and I can imagine as frustrating as it may have been to have been alongside for refit for yep. a year, it was invaluable enabling you to understand the ship and the ship's company. Yes. And as XO, yep. executive officer number two in charge, yep. really everything falls to you to make sure everything's up to date for the skipper. Yep. He was a pretty hard bugger to work for. <laughs> and and, and, and who, was your, who was your CO then? Peter Doyle. About a year after that, Perth gets called upon to serve in Vietnam. Yes. Your first active deployment. Yes. Tell us what happens. We had a lot of problems there. We spent most of our time off North Vietnam from the demilitarised zone right up to the Hanoi. And we were backwards and forwards 
there and we were shooting them and they were shooting us. So when we say shooting, are you giving naval gunfire support to the shore operations or are you engaging with Vietnamese aircraft or indeed? With all of that. Well, that's pretty active. Yeah, it was very, it was very active, very active. And we got shot up. We had about 300 rounds shot at us from the shore and one of them came in and came through the rear turret and it shot that up and so we had to go over to Subic Bay. We went over there and had about three weeks there and had the gun fixed up and then we went back again. So when they hit you, did you lose anyone? Didn't lose anyone, but we had two fellows that were sent away for about two weeks on an American ship and they came back to us. I understand there were orders from Navy not to get in too close because of risk of our assets. But then a lot of the Navy boys used to go in and support the land guys because they were having such a hard time. But of course, the cost of that was it made you vulnerable. We didn't have any land boys in there. So you were just going in to bombard yep. forces. So yep. it wasn't in conjunction with army or anything. No. It was just a mission to simply yes. to destroy enemy assets. And when you were hit, was Perth with another series of Allied ships? We were, we were with another uh, American ship. And that was a big cruiser, and that uh, left us. <laughs> Did they get hit? They didn't get hit. They didn't get hit, yeah. but they turned off and left us. Anyway, we, we went back to Subic Bay and got the gun fixed. So when you um, refitted and returned to action, any other developments? We were virtually then running the thing ourselves. We would, would be with another American ship, a smaller one, and we were helping that. I, I think that people don't appreciate that even though a ship is offshore, the fact is that ship's company are all closed up for action. Yeah, You've got incoming happening all the time, be it air, be it from land, or even as you said, the Vietnamese had those fast patrol boats that could get in at you. And there was that multitude of local river traffic and other stuff that could just float out that could have enemy assets on board against you. So as XO, you would be worrying about someone damaging you and your ship's company from all directions, I imagine, at all times. Pretty well, yes. So people can appreciate, even though you're a ship, you're not removed from the stresses of action. That's right, yeah. For that particular, when we got hit, we had about 300 rounds fired at us. And are these small calibre or are they... About four inch. A hit would do a lot of damage. And it did. We had a fair bit of stuff hit the side of the ship. Ian, moving on a bit, you were director of underwater weapons at the Navy office before given inaugural command of the destroyer HMAS Torrens in 1971. Can you tell us about your first role as CO? It was a wonderful ship. And Torrens was one of the old destroyer escorts. Yeah, it was a brand new ship when I got it. How did that feel from coming off Perth as XO, second charge, to being fully responsible? So, so the buck is stopping with you. Yeah. How many... Uh, ship's company, what, what, what was your uh, complement? Uh, we had about 230. So you've got 230 sailors and, and officers. You've got a brand new destroyer, arguably the best the Navy has at the time. Yep. How did that feel? Fantastic. Tell us about what that did for you as being skipper and the responsibility you had. Uh, well, the responsibility was quite Hi, it was very useful to me in going up to the next ship I had. So what sort of things did you do with Torrens? What operations, anything exciting in particular you'd like to talk about? Well, we went over to Hawaii about twice, I think, 
and we were doing some shooting with our Aikara weapons over there, and we right up the north coast of uh, Thailand and right up to, I think we went right up to Japan. Yep. So the Navy's got you doing a lot of things with this new ship yep. to work it in, show our presence, yep. and just give you all that experience and to be putting our nation's interest into all these spheres of interest that we have up north. After Torrens, you then promoted to another ship. Can you tell us about Hobart? Hobart was a very good ship, but I didn't have much time in there. I only had a year. Can you tell us about Hobart? So we go from the destroyer escort yeah. to what, a DDG? DDG. Can you explain what that is? DDG, which was very similar to the one I'd been in with Perth, and so I had quite a lot of no problems with running that. And the old DDGs, I mean, they really looked like an old warship. They sure did. Yeah. They sure did. Everyone I know that's served on them, the DDGs in particular, loved them and felt they were real Navy before we went to all these modern American frigates yeah, yeah. with stuff bolted on and yeah, uh, yeah. and off we go. So you're serving on our last real classical warship, yes. if I could put it that way. Yeah. And you only had a year on Hobart. Why was that? I don't know. Don't know. <laughs> you actually left that bigger ship even for yet our biggest ship. Melbourne. Yeah, well, that was about four years later, I think I went to Melbourne. And you're skipper on the Melbourne. Yeah. And that's our carrier. Yeah. So now you're the skipper of our capital ship. Yeah. And the complement jumps from the destroyer escort of 240 to how many have you got now? About 1,300. And you've got the complexity of aircraft. Yes. Being the capital ship and you're the one that's now seen to provide all these services in the Navy, like the Melbourne can do so many more things yeah. because of its aircraft. Yeah. I'd never been a carrier before, and that was a, a real problem. And uh, I took a while to settle down on that. But uh, anyway, I, I think I did a, a pretty good job. And we had a fair few problems with Melbourne. It was long, the stuff that was crook, a lot of stuff was crook on there. We had a fair bit of problems with flying operations. We lost Two aircraft, didn't lose any pilots. And these accidents would happen, what, typically at takeoff or landing? Takeoff. Takeoff. So the propulsion system, you know, the launching, that, that was problematic. Yep, yeah. yep. Well, it was good that you recovered the uh, the pilots, gee. We recovered the pilots. And out of interest on that, would you run behind you on a carrier a rescue boat just in the event of that scenario when you were launching craft? We always had a helicopter airborne when we had a sending off aircraft. The last boat we had that went over the side, the aircraft went up slowly up the track and then went over the front. So you had to avoid running him over? Yep, yep. Well, that'd be pretty difficult to suddenly turn a, a well, 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 we couldn't turn the carrier. We just went straight over the top of him. He ejected as he went over the top and he floated on his harness. That dragged him under the ship and he came out the other end. It carried him deep enough so yeah. that he got under Melbourne's yeah. um, keel, which how far deep are we talking about, 20 feet or something? 20 feet, something yeah, like that, yeah. yeah. He would no doubt been able to have felt the draft of the yep. keel going over yep. and then the bloody propellers following. Yep. What a lucky man. Yeah, lucky man. And lucky for you, you didn't have to report a fatality. <laughs> So he pops up the other side, probably to the amazement of everyone and the joy of everyone when the helicopter guy grabs him. Yeah, yeah. Oh, what a great survival story. My yeah. God, he's a lucky man. He was a very lucky man. And he was the youngest guy that we had in the, in the carrier, the youngest pilot. Literally, so once the boys sort of 
thrown off the horse, he gets back on the horse. Did you put him on another plane the next day? <laughs> no, we didn't. XO to CO and going from DEs to DDGs to carrier. I mean, you've ticked all the boxes. Yeah. And with respect, you've been lucky that you haven't been embroiled in a major conflict. I can see how you've had a clear run with respect, which is good luck to you. And not forgetting, you know, Chief, you know, Vice Chief of Defence Force, there's a lot you've done, Ian. Well, Vice Chief of the Defence Force was uh, a fairly difficult thing. I worked for the Chief of Defence Force. I worked for him, Peter Gration. How'd you find him? Very good. Very good. And he was Army, of course. Yes. Very good. And in that role, of course, at that high level of Chief of Defence Force and supporting him, you're having to deal with a lot of politics with Canberra. That's a whole different war for you. Yeah. But I'd, I'd had, this was my fourth term in Canberra when I did that job. And were you liking that? Or I should say, was your wife liking that? <laughs> Having you at home and doing something local? She was very happy happy with that, yeah. yeah. We had uh, four times in Canberra. I think I had more time in Canberra than any anyone else in the Navy at that stage. And they're all very senior postings yeah. in Canberra too. Well, yeah. So you were made a companion of the Order of Australia in July 1989 and you retire from the Navy after 42 years of service. Yes. It's a lifetime. Pretty well is, yes. But Ian, what's become quite clear in our chat today is you've literally done everything that the Navy could offer for the time that you were there. That's right, yep. And you were fortunate that in that time, the nation wasn't dragged into a major war, but we need to keep our military going all the time so that we can be doing all those roles in order to stop these things happening. Yes. You know, like if you weren't deployed to the Pacific and showing that presence at the time, who's to say what bad things could have developed from there? So you've been doing your job. You've actually been keeping the peace, which is the primary point of the Defence Force. You know, it wants to stay out of war more so than go into war. And you've achieved that over 42 years. You've been posted to Greenwich over in England, Newport, Rhode Island in America, And you've had, as you said, many postings in Canberra, I think four senior positions. I mean, if you look back on your life of service, is there anything else in that Navy time that you'd like to share with us? I had quite a bit of time in America and serving in America nine months over there. The American thing that I had was mainly keeping an eye on things that we were doing in America and uh, making sure that we weren't doing them properly. So Ian, after this massive career in the Navy, what do you do in retirement? (laughs) I retired gracefully. And when you say gracefully, I understand that you've still thrown your energy into legacy. Yes. And many other good causes. Why don't we talk about legacy? Legacy was a worthwhile, a very worthwhile charity to get into. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I've, I've done a fair bit of work in legacy and I'm just rolling out of that a bit. Ian Knox, thank you so much for coming and talking with us today. Your life of a boy in the country that's made good in the Navy over four decades of service and indeed ended up commanding Melbourne, our biggest carrier. Thank you for your service and thank you for your time with us today. You're very welcome. Thank you. You can check out our website, www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com Email us at podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com, like us on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast, and follow us on Twitter at LOTLPod. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. 
artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.